0: Sometimes we have a narrow definition of how we expect God to work in our lives. We think that he's only going to speak to us in one way or do it do things in one way with certain people. But I find that God uses anything and everything to bring us back to him. That's today on the Tower Hill podcast. Hello and welcome to the Tower Hill Church podcast. If you've joined our Bible study on Facebook as well, we're wrapping that up this week. For the past 20 days, over 250 of you have been joining Pastor Jason every single day on Facebook. He gives a five-minute video digging into the book of James. It's been an amazing study, lots of participation and discussion. If you've been a part of it, thank you for joining us. If you want to be a part of it, you can still see the view, view the videos and see them. Um, Or any of our previous Facebook Bible studies, just go to facebook.com slash Tower Hill Church and join our Facebook Bible study group from there. Hope to see you online. This week's podcast, we continue the sermon series, 12 Stones, exploring how stories in the Bible shape our own story. Join us right now to hear more about the Old Testament prophet Elijah and how his story twists and turns and how God uses tragedy for good.
1: So, we are now in week seven of our summer sermon series called 12 Stones Stories That Shape Our Faith. And if you've been with us over these past six weeks or so, uh, you'll know that each week we have heard a story from the Bible and then tried to connect that story to our lives. So, if you were here last week, you heard about David. He's the shepherd boy who grew up to be a man after God's own heart. And then he ended up becoming the king of Israel after King Saul. And that was when um, Israel was in its heyday. Um, So I'm going to now try to connect David's story to today's story about Elijah. So you may remember um, that uh, King David ruled in the early years of the nation of Israel when it was one strong united kingdom. And then his life sort of takes a turn for the worse when he makes a bad decision, shall we say, Um, and uh, he has an affair with a married woman, Bathsheba. And King David makes sure her husband Uriah never finds out by putting her husband on the front lines of battle where he is killed. So that's one way to take care of that situation. (laughs) But Bathsheba ends up marrying King David. They have a child who unfortunately dies young. And they have a second son whose name is Solomon. He becomes king of Israel and rules for 40 years. And uh, it started off pretty well at first. You've probably heard of the wisdom of King Solomon. People people came to him. You've heard of that choice with the mother and the baby. Um, Maybe you know that story. starts off well, but then he begins to lose focus. He starts to divert his attention. He starts paying more attention to capital campaigns and building projects. Uh, You may have heard of his temple, which was elaborate, took seven years to build, and then he had a palace that took 13 years to build, no small project. But worse than that, he began to follow the gods with a little g that his, wait for it, 700 wives and 300 concubines followed. I I can't even do that kind of math. Um, But anyway, his unfaithfulness to God leads to God taking away his kingdom, as he warned would happen and giving it to his younger son, Rehoboam. So um, after Solomon dies, the king of Israel falls apart even worse and literally is split into two. The northern tribes revolt and decide to follow Solomon's servant, uh, Jeroboam, instead and keep the name Israel. You can go ahead to the next slide. Uh, And then the southern kingdom, uh, just Judah and Benjamin, two little tribes, they... um, stay with Rehoboam, and become the name Judah. So the key is that Jerusalem was in that southern kingdom of Judah, and that's the line through which Jesus came. But anyway, this is what's happening here um, uh, right before we meet our prophet Israel. I mean, uh, Elijah. Anyway, so when Rehoboam dies, his son becomes king and then follows many, many bad kings. A couple, couple good but mostly bad in the southern kingdom but that's nothing compared to the northern kingdom where it goes bad, 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 very bad. And very bad is evil King Ahab, who was more evil than all the other kings who had ruled before him. And like Solomon, King Ahab used to follow God, the God of Israel, but then he ends up following the faith of his wife, King Jezebel. Mean, mean, mean Queen Jezebel. And she followed Baal, who's considered a Canaanite fertility god. And so Ahab did too. And he didn't just casually worship Baal. He built a temple and statues and idols and all kinds of things. So this is what is going on right when the prophet Elijah enters. This is still 900 years before Christ. Uh, So you kind of get an idea there, right? So we've heard of Exodus, Judges, kingdom all together for about 100 years. And then the divided kingdom, we're right there, 900 to 800 um, years before Christ, just to give you an idea. And that's when it's bad, 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 bad king after bad king, couple good ones interspersed in there. So Elijah seems to appear out of nowhere and introduces himself to King Ahab and says, hi, hopefully, although it's not recorded. <laughs> he says, I serve the Lord. He is the God of Israel. Pretty good introduction. And then he gives Elijah this message from God, a prophecy that says, there won't be any rain or dew for a few years until I say so. And then he runs away to the valley for two years. And kind of a strange series of events. And he meets a widow who uh, helps keep him alive, feeds him, gives him water. Meanwhile, the people of Israel are dying, and their animals are dying, and they're hungry, and they're thirsty, and Ahab's wife Jezebel is killing off all the prophets of the Lord, so they can't keep this up for very long. They're in the third year of the drought, and God says to Elijah, all right, I'll make it rain if you go talk to Ahab. So he goes and talks to Ahab. They blame each other for what's going on, and then Elijah calls out King Ahab and says, hey, you are not following God anymore. Stop following those other little G gods. And and if you don't change, you're going to die and you're going to lose your kingdom. Well, that didn't convince Ahab. So he challenges him and all of his prophets, hundreds and hundreds of them, to a contest that I'll call, my God is better than your God. And he says, meet me on Mount Carmel. We're going to have a showdown. We'll see whose God is really in charge. And this is going to help you make up your mind who you're going to worship. So each side, this is 1 Kings 18, each side prepares their animal sacrifice and then calls on God to send down fire to burn up the sacrifice with, I don't know, yells and chants and singing and dancing. And none of the little g gods respond. But the God of Israel sends down fire and burns up the sacrifice. I think I have a picture of it. It looks kind of scary, but there it is. Okay, one artist's depiction, you understand. Um, and all of the people watching fall down their faces, fall down their knees, and, and just start, they're convinced. The Lord is the one and only God, is what they yell. And then uh, lots of them try to escape, because they realize, okay, now we're in trouble. But Elijah and his followers capture them and kill them. I know, violence. Um, before they can get away. And this is where I'm going to begin reading 1 Kings chapter 19. So that's a lot of history, but you kind of need to fill out those pictures for this to make sense. And we'll start with our scripture. So Ahab, King Ahab, told Queen Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, And more also, if I do not make your life like the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. In other words, I'm going to kill you. Then he was afraid. He got up and fled for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah. He left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and he came and sat down under a solitary broom tree there. That's a broom tree, in case you were wondering. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't look very comfortable to sit that. But anyway, he went a day's journey into the wilderness. Uh, okay. He asked that he might die. It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the broom tree, and fell asleep. Suddenly, an angel touched him and said to him, Get up and eat. He looked, and there at his head was a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. He ate and drank and lay down again. The angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Get up and eat. Otherwise, the journey will be too much for you. He got up and ate and drank. Then he went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. At that place, he came to a cave and spent the night there. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, What are you doing here, Elijah? He answered, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the Israelites have forsaken your covenant. "'thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. "'I alone am left, and they are seeking my life to take it away. "'He said, "'Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord, "'for the Lord is about to pass by. "'Now there was a great wind, "'so strong it was splitting mountains "'and breaking rocks in pieces before the Lord.' But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of sheer silence. In the following verses, I'll summarize real quickly. Elijah stands at the entrance to the cave. Doesn't that look cool? Wouldn't you just like to have a little fort right in there? Um, He stands at the entrance to the cave and hears the Lord the Lord saying to him again, Elijah, what are you doing here? And Elijah repeats his same answer about the Israelites trying to kill him. And God tells Elijah to go home and get back to work. I have your succession plan all figured out. What a story. Elijah goes from this victorious, confident leader to a frightened, even suicidal, fugitive. His world just came crashing down on him. And when he hears that Queen Jezebel wants him dead tomorrow, he panics and runs for his life probably looking over his shoulder the entire time. You might say he's just experienced trauma, drama and trauma. No wonder he feels anxious and afraid and alone. And he's probably not thinking too clearly, which is why he tells God, I can't take it anymore. I give up. Just let me die. Ever felt that way? When you just said, I'm done. I'm just done. I am so done. Burned out, worn out, checked out, like you can't go on another day. Well, there may not be an evil queen that wants you dead tomorrow, but maybe you've been at your wits' end about a situation. Maybe at work, maybe with your kids, maybe with your parents, perhaps with your health. And then you start to pull away from other people and you start to pull away from God. If you can identify even a little bit with these feelings of exhaustion and discouragement and isolation, you're not alone. It means you're human. When I think of the epidemic of drug overdoses and suicides that we've heard about recently, it makes me wonder if we need to do a better job at letting our young people know that feelings of failure and frustration and discouragement and isolation have been part of the human experience since the beginning of time. I think we get a distorted view of that through, you know, social media where everything's perfect. Well, I think Elijah might have some guidance for us in situations like this. First thing Elijah does when he can't go any further is to rest. He collapses under a broom tree, which does not look very comfortable to me because that's like sleeping on rocks. But I guess when you get to that point, you'll take anything He goes to sleep. I know when we feel like we want to quit, it could mean we simply need some rest. There are times where I thought I needed to leave a job when what I really needed was a vacation. Maybe you've been in that kind of situation yourself. Well, after Elijah has a nap and a snack, two snacks, actually, that's all I need. Cake. Doesn't cake make everything better? He has enough strength to go on his journey for 40 days and 40 nights, and that's no accident. That means a number of testing. or or preparation. But that's only part of the equation. Elijah Elijah not just needs to rest, he needs to redirect his attention to God and take it off himself. And the reason we know he needs to redirect his attention is because his answer to God's question, what are you doing here, sounds like a self-righteous whine. And maybe you picked that up in the way I read the scripture. He's like, oh, I've been so faithful and good, and everybody else is so bad, and now they're out to get me. I'm the only one doing it right. You've probably never said that, right? But like, it's interesting that like a parent uh, who's responding to a toddler having a tantrum, what do all the parenting books say when a, when a child's having a toddler? Ignore and redirect. Redirect. Well, that's what God does. doesn't respond to his, to his little tantrum. He just redirects Elijah's attention and says, go out on the mountain. The Lord's about to pass by. In other words, he's saying, come, spend time with me. Be with me. Well, I don't know about you, but when I'm in the mountains looking at a picture like that, oh, sorry, it's not very clear. Mine's clearer down here. Okay, imagine a beautiful mountain. Um, I find that I can listen to God more clearly. Now, I don't mean that I can hear God in an audible voice. I've never had that experience. But I mean that I can hear it through someone else, or maybe a word of Scripture, or an encouraging word from another person, or maybe a sense of God's presence with me. And I'm more receptive. In the mountains, I get clarity, and I remember who I am and who God is and what God has called me to do. Maybe you have a different place where you experience that, but for me, it's the mountains. Our youngest daughter, Ellie, is at Summer's Best Two Weeks Camp, uh, these two weeks, in uh, western Pennsylvania. The mountains there, the Laurel Mountains, uh, and her siblings and her cousins and both her parents also grew up uh, going there. And this time she's there with 10 other kids from Tower Hill, so that should be a fun experience. And in a letter I sent to Ellie last week, I told her that I hope that she would hear God in a new way while she's there. Kids at camp, away from the TV, away from the distractions of smartphones, and around hundreds of kids and adults who love Jesus, I think... Can, can hear and feel a sense of God's presence in ways they don't as much at home. And I wonder if that's why God tells Elijah to go and stand on the mountain. It would make him slow down and listen to God and just be still. Remember, God did not speak to him in the wind or in the earthquake or in the fire. It was in the st- silence. And in some translations of that verse, it says, still, small voice. One of our Bible verses for Vacation Bible School this year was Psalm 4610, be still and know that I am God, which is an interesting verse to try to teach squirmy kids, you know, preschool through fifth grade. (laughs) But they were great. And at the activity station that I led with Betty LeRae, my fearless partner, I asked the kids and their crew leaders to close their eyes. I had to give very specific instruction. Take everything out of your hands, sit quietly, close your eyes, and we're going to be quiet for one minute. And I timed them, 60 seconds. And they did it. Some kids want to know if they could lie down and whatever. They had 100 questions, but they did it for 60 seconds. And in all four groups that I led, the kids' reaction was, oh, my gosh, that felt like three hours. And one boy said, that felt like seven years. And, oh, I thought I was going to die. And all the adults to a person said, can we keep going? That was so relaxing. Can we go two minutes? How about five? And it was just so funny to see these polar opposite reactions. What would it look like if we could sit still Quietly and listen for God, to be still and remember that God is God and we are not? I forget that sometimes. Would we hear the still, small voice that might lure us out of our caves? Would we hear God quietly saying to us, What are you doing here? I think sometimes we're too noisy and too busy to hear questions like that from God. Well, sometimes an experience that makes us stop is forced upon us, like when the power goes out. Has this ever happened to you? The power goes out and you rediscover talking on your porch to your family or your neighbors? or you rediscover playing um, board games or card games by candlelight. It's amazing what we, what we rediscover. And then sometimes an experience like this is forced upon us by tragedy, by a death of someone we love, by an accident, by a terminal illness. And it can lead us to a new or renewed sense of purpose. Well, that's what happened to Elijah. After he rested, he redirected his attention to God and remembered who he was. He quit focusing on himself and started to look out at others. And then he got back to work that God had called him to do. So we're going to review that. And how does Elijah's story connect to our story? Or speak to your story. And the first is rest. When in doubt, stop and take a nap. (laughs) Maybe a really long nap. Rest. Remember that you can't do it all. We are human, not superhuman. And then the next thing, oh, and you should have a snack while you're at it. See if someone will make you some cake because that'll make it even better. And then redirect your attention to God. Take your eyes off yourself and try to be still And listen to how God might be speaking to you. These all begin with R, because, you know, makes it easier that way. The third R is remember. Remember who you are, and remember who God is. Remember how God has blessed you. Remember what God has called you to do. Remember. And then the fourth one is renew your purpose. Maybe it's going to be a pivot point in a new direction in your life, or maybe you'll find yourself recommitted to what you had been doing all along. Well, I want to tell you a story about a young woman named Catherine who helps me to remember all of these points. She and her extended family were members of First Presbyterian Church of Athens, Georgia, where I served as associate pastor for about five years. And after she graduated from Samford University in Alabama, Samford with an M, where she was named Miss Samford, she's beautiful, Uh, Catherine and her college boyfriend Jay got married at a big, huge wedding, 600 guests at First Pres in Athens, and it was beautiful. And Jay's father, who's a Baptist minister, uh, preached a very prophetic sermon. Uh, I wasn't there. I came to the church about a year or two later. Um, preach a prophetic sermon about building your life and your marriage on a strong spiritual foundation because the storms are coming. It's not if, it's when. So um, with that, they moved to Southern California. Catherine began a career as an actress and a model, and Jay went to law school at Pepperdine. And uh, right away, they got plugged into Bel Air Presbyterian Church. It's actually a lot like Tower Hill in L.A., and they were involved with the Young Married Couples Ministry and ended ended up starting leading it, which they laugh at because, like, what did they know about being married? they done it for, like, a year. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, then um, a few years later, they became parents and had a baby boy named James, and Catherine loved being a mother. She just was so fulfilled and just loved that role. And then when James was about six months old, um, there was one day Catherine just wasn't feeling quite right, and she called Jay, and he, uh, he decided to, to stop home between classes just to check if everything was all right, and he found uh, James asleep in the crib, and Catherine collapsed on the kitchen floor and after calling 911 and rushing to her to the hospital by ambulance they learned that she had had a massive brainstem stroke caused by a congenital defect and it was the worst the doctors had ever seen an extremely brave neurosurgeon who just happened to be there that day performed a difficult and risky 16-hour microbrain surgery on Catherine that involved removing parts of her brain and no one expected her to live. And in the rare chance that she did, she would likely end up in a vegetative state, um, paralyzed for life. And you can probably guess what happened, or I wouldn't be telling the story. Against all odds, Catherine survived. And it's kind of scary to see her picture. She had a tracheotomy. She had uh, machines hooked up to her, um, She spent 40 days and 40 nights, which I believe is no accident, in the intensive care unit. And then she spent the next year and a half having more surgeries, uh, in and out of hospitals and rehab, relearning the things she used to know how to do, like swallowing. I took 11 months. Speaking. took more than a year. Walking. Still can't do it, but she could stand and walk with a cane. 18 months. I don't know about you, but... I think I would be done at that point. Just can't even fathom what that would be like. But after Catherine had time to rest and to rehabilitate, she wasn't done. She and Jay redirected their attention to God and found themselves with a renewed sense of passion and love for God and a sense of God's presence in their life that they had never felt before. And they remembered the promises that they had made to each other. And they remembered the ways that God had blessed them again and again. Instead of choosing to live a a low-profile, off-the-radar life, they had this burning sense and renewed sense of purpose that God was going to use them as a messenger to bring a message of hope and a message of healing. I first met Jane Catherine Christmas Eve, about a year and a half after her stroke, and I remember being taken aback by how joyful and confident and unself-conscious Catherine was. Here she was in her wheelchair, paralyzed, paralyzed right side, drooping face, her speeches slurred, and loud because she's had hearing loss, and you'd never know it. She just was totally unfazed by it, and I saw how completely committed and in love with her Jay was. And then the following summer, I got to spend more time with them on a hospital visit. While Catherine was having yet another surgery, this time unrelated to the stroke, this time she had tripped over something while visiting her parents, broken her leg in several places, and had to have a rod inserted in her leg. And when I saw her, I was like, oh my goodness, Catherine, this is awful, I'm so sorry. I'll never forget her answer. She's like, no worries, it was my bad leg anyway. It's like, "It, it could have been worse. Not the answer most people would give after a setback like that. But Catherine was not most people. And I watched how she engaged people with this infectious joy and enthusiasm that touched every nurse and doctor and visitor that stopped in her room. They left changed. So as we were talking during our visit, they told me how they felt like God was nudging them to tell their story, this message of hope, and healing, how Jesus can heal our broken bodies and our broken souls. They just were ready to tell their story, even the dark and difficult parts. They were thinking really selfishly about a way for them to heal but also thought, yeah, this will probably help other people too and how they had felt God's presence. And they, they weren't sure if it was going to be a blog or a website or they were just kind of trying to explore some different options. And, but they had decided to call it Hope Heals with the symbol of an anchor based on a verse in Hebrews. Perhaps you've heard of it. (laughs) Well, since that conversation in 2012, Jay and Catherine have reached millions and millions of people with their message. They have a blog, they have a book, they have a movie, they have a website. They've done hundreds of interviews on print and TV media They've spoken at churches and conferences and schools around the world. They have a camp called Hope Heals for Disabled Children. And Catherine's face, you may be seeing it, is on billboards all around the country. We saw one in the Pennsylvania Turnpike on the way to camp for how to recognize symptoms in a stroke victim. Anybody recognize that? seen her before? Um, she still bears signs of her stroke. That's actually a reversed image. I just realized that because it's her right side that droops. You know, it's like a selfie Anyway, it's backwards. Um, Her face is still paralyzed. She still can't drive. She still can't walk on her own. But she doesn't ask, why me, God? Instead, she hears God asking her the same question that was asked of Elijah. What are you doing here? What are you doing here? And she wonders, what did God have in mind in choosing to spare her life? She's so quick to describe the way God has blessed her. She thinks of all the things, well, Jay happened to come home and that doctor happened to be there, and she just thinks of blessing upon blessing. And despite all the statistics about marriages with one spouse as disabled, their marriage is strong, and they went on to have another child, a baby named John. There he is. And his middle name is named after the doctor that saved her life. Next week, they're moving back to Georgia to be back with her family, but not until she preaches one last time this morning at her church in L.A. to again send that message of hope. Now, when Catherine tells her story, she speaks like a prophet, pointing people to God and calling them out when they don't, kind of like Elijah and I close with these words from Catherine's prophetic preaching. What has happened to me is extreme, but it's similar to what everyone deals with. I couldn't walk, but who feels free even when they can? My face is messed up. It's frozen, paralyzed. Paralyzed. But who feels beautiful when they look in the mirror? I couldn't eat. But who feels satisfied even when they can eat? My voice is messed up now. But who feels understood even when they can speak? No one. So no matter the situation, people feel what I am living out. They don't feel free. They don't feel satisfied. When God is all you have, you realize that God is all you ever needed. So when you feel anxious and afraid and exhausted and want to quit... When God feels far away, remember Elijah. Remember Catherine. Rest, redirect your attention to God. Remember who God is and who you are. Renew your purpose, and then get back to work. Amen. i invite ride our van to back up here, and I'll send us with a quick prayer. Thank you, O God, for these reminders today of Elijah and Catherine and may we remember the ways you have blessed us and what you have called us to do. In your name we pray. Amen.